go ahead and get started here. By my count, if this is accurate, this is our 28th installment in this series that I've titled First Principles of Our Faith. Working through our confession, and, and I, I hope you have, have profited from this. I, I hope you're, you're seeing the evidence of the fact that these really are those things that are most foundational, those things upon which our faith rests. As we think about the context, the content, I should say, of the first six chapters of our confession, looking at the doctrine of the scriptures, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of his decree, the doctrine of creation, and now as we're working through the doctrine of providence, these things are not just matters to fill our minds, to occupy our attention, or to um, you know, build us up intellectually, to do all those things. But more than anything, uh, I hope that we're growing in our, our faith, growing in our, our confidence in our triune God, uh, growing in our, our worship, our doxology towards Him. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit of the living God to help us as we, we continue working through uh, the somewhat thorny subject of evil. And how do, we, how do we think about the presence of sin and evil at the same time that we confess that God is the first cause of all things. By his decree, all things that come to pass are determined. And that by his most wise and most holy providence, he causes all things to work together for good. How do we, how do we think about all these things at one time in our minds? So let's go and ask for the Lord to help us consider these things together. Our most holy and wise and good and steadfast God. Uh, we, we come to you, uh, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, because you have caused us to be. You have given us breath by which we may either praise you or blaspheme you. We, we've given us energy by which we may serve you or oppose those who serve you. We pray that, Holy Spirit, that you will give us understanding of your word. Uh, help us to think carefully, accurately, faithfully, with hearts of worship about our true and living God. Help us to think about your activity in creation and providence. Help us to think rightly about the end, the result, the, the goal of your activity in creation. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You turn with me to the book of James, the book of James in chapter 1. <clears throat> We're working through the fourth paragraph in chapter 5 on divine providence. And what we find here, what we've been working through the last several weeks, is really the question of, of evil, the, the question of the presence of sin, the presence of wickedness, and reconciling that with the fact that God is the one who has decreed all things. and Because what, what inevitably happens 
is when we confess that God has decreed all things, when we confess that He is sovereign, both in His decree and in His activity, regarding everything that, that has or will ever come to pass, the inevitable question arises, what about evil? What about sin? Uh, any, anybody that's done any apologetics will, will tell you this is one of the first questions that's going to come up. What about evil? And of course, we've been looking at this, that there are really only three choices. That God is able to stop evil, but he's hands off. He chooses not to intervene. In, in which case, God's goodness comes into question. Or we say God is simply not able to stop all evil. Some of it perhaps, but not all of it, because ultimately the free will of man supersedes divine authority and power. In which case, it's not God's goodness that's in question, but his power, his authority. And the only answer that is faithful to all of the Scripture is that God does in fact govern all things and does so to the extent that he actually uses sin. He uses the wicked deeds of men. He uses evil events in order to accomplish his good purposes. So in James chapter 1, we have this very clear, decisive statement. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now what James is saying is, is, is profound. It's not complex, but it still can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around this. Because what James is saying very clearly is that God is never tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone to evil. God is never the author of sin. And he puts the, the, the onus, he puts the responsibility, he puts the blame with respect to sin, where? Upon the creature. Upon particularly the fallen human being. Each person, verse 14, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. I don't think it's a surprise to us that, that James, knowing what we know of his previous uh, vocation, is using a fishing imagery. Fishing imagery. He, he says that we are lured, we are enticed. And I, I'm not uh, an accomplished fisherman at all, but I, I know the concept, I know how it works. You either put a worm on a hook, or you have something that it, that's movement. You, you go into a, 
Academy, you're going to some sporting goods store and you walk down the fishing aisle, it's really fascinating uh, the ways that, that men have invented all kinds of things. Shiny, there's movement, there's sparkles, there's colors, there's shapes, there's sizes, there's sounds that these lures make. And all of those things are designed to do one thing. What are they designed to do? Entice a fish. Appeal, but they're appealing to the nature of the fish, aren't they? They are appealing to, there's an, it's, there's, there's, in a largemouth bass, there's no cognitive uh, function that says, hmm, I'm thinking about something red today. I'm feeling kind of sparkly today. There's nothing like that. It, it, is, it is merely a base instinct. And, and James is actually making somewhat of a comparison. He's not saying that we are mere beasts of the field. We are created in the image of God. And yet, in our fallen nature, according to that fallen nature, there can be a lure, as it were, an enticement, a temptation that's, that's set in front of us, and it is not the temptation itself that is evil. It is our own flesh that's drawn to that. It is our own, our own inward inclination that causes us to be lured and enticed. It is our own desire. And then, James tells us, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's a vivid image, isn't it? Here's this desire. And, and when it has its conception, when it, when it grows up, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. But notice where James locates the problem. Not with God. Not with the decree. Not even a created thing that might be the source of temptation. Or might be, I should say, the occasion of temptation. It is in the creature. He goes on to say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So here's the other side of this. Not only does sin not come from God, but all good things and only good things come from God. He is the source of all that is good. Now let's meditate upon one other passage before we jump into the confession. This is in 1 John. If you turn just to your, to your right, just a handful of pages in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The apostle exhorts us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what is John telling us? There is the reality of wickedness in this world. John uses the terms, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I don't think I have to unpack for you the illusion 
that John is making here. When you see that phrase, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, what, what do you, where does your mind immediately go? Matthew? Yeah, the garden. This is precisely, it's even the same kind of language that's used to describe the temptation there. The fruit itself was not evil. God had made all things, including the tree of good, the knowledge of good and evil, and declared it good, but he said it was not for Adam and Eve. And yet, the serpent appealed on this very basis, the desire of their own flesh, the desire of their own eyes, the pride of life. And John tells us those things are not from God. God did not create sin. God is not the author of sin. These things are from the world. The the, the scriptures are consistent in rooting evil rooting sin in creatureliness, not in God. So now, with that in mind, let's go to our our confession. Chapter 5, paragraph 4. This is our our third week now looking at this this paragraph, and Lord willing, this will move on to paragraph 5 next Lord's Day. We're going to be considering primarily the very last phrase in paragraph 4 today, but I'm going to read the entirety of the paragraph. The almighty power, unsearchable witness, wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth, in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet, and here's our emphasis today, yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be, the author or approver of sin. He cannot be the author or approver of sin. And as I've said before, this is a a subject matter that's weighty, isn't it? it? It's difficult to think through. And we want to tread humbly, we want to tread carefully. Um, I mentioned last time there are a handful of lectures from the 2018 Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference. In 2018, they worked through the doctrine of providence. And there's a few lectures in particular that I would commend to you from Dr. James Dolezal. Uh, they're, they're going to be deeper and more technical, far more technical, than what I'm, I'm covering last week and, and today. But I think they are very helpful for those that want to, to explore this subject further. But the key question that, that emerges, and, I, and I've taken this, this question straight from uh, one of Dr. Dolezal's lectures is, can we say in any respect that God is the cause of evil? Can we say in any respect that God is the cause of evil? And the answer is yes, but not the author of it. And there is a careful distinction. Because God has decreed all things, we cannot say, that something, anything, is outside of God's decree. Because if we do, then God is not sovereign. 
God is not God. Something else, or something else, or someone else is in fact God rather than God. So we, 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 can't leave, we can't leave that door open and say, well, it's possible that perhaps something is just outside of God's control or his authority. We have to say that it, is, it, is, it absolutely is according to God's decree, and yet he is not the author of sin. Dr. Rinehan quotes extensively from Stephen Charnock, and he's quoting from an essay about divine providence. I've quoted several times from Charnock's Existence and Attributes of God, his two-volume work. This is a different, uh, different work, but nonetheless equally helpful. And Charnock asks this question. So here's some of the main points he's going to work through. If God's providence orders all things in the world and concurs to everything, meaning it, 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 it cooperates with, it works with all things, how will you free God from being the author of sin? So you hear the thrust of the question. This is really the main issue that we've been wrestling with, is if God's providence orders all things in the world, if he in fact has decreed all things, and if he governs all things from the greatest to the least, if we mean by all things, all things, then how is it that we do not charge God with being the author of sin? Now here's, here's his answer, and he's going to give this in what he describes as several propositions. First, he says, "'Tis certain God hath a hand about all the sinful actions in the world." Think about this. He says, "'The selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites was the act of his brethren, but the sending of Joseph into Egypt was the act of God.'" You see? None of the things with with his brothers would have happened or could have happened had God not sent Joseph to Egypt. Nor was God surprised or caught off guard or was he in a position of having to change his plan because of what happened to Joseph in the hands of his brothers. And of course you know that famous passage, that beautiful passage in Genesis 50 after Jacob has died. So dad is gone and the brothers are now fearful that now that, jo- that now that Jacob is gone, that Joseph will finally have his vengeance upon them. And Joseph testifies, brothers, what you meant for evil, God intended for good, to save many people this day. And so Joseph didn't let them off the hook. He didn't, he didn't undo or undermine their true works of evil. But he said God used that. God intended those things. So Charlotte goes on with other examples. He says it was God, and we, we looked at this passage two lessons ago. God moved David to number the people. You can go and look at this in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And yet it is said in 1 Chronicles 21 that Satan is said to provoke David to number the people. Satan wills it as a sin, says Charnock, God as a punishment. So here's the same act. But in, in one sense, we can say this is from two different vantage points, isn't it? God's will, God's decree, God's providential rule was to accomplish a chastisement of his people, to accomplish a good for his people. And yet Satan intended it as sin, as rebellion. Charnock gives another example. In the most villainous and unrighteous actions that ever was done, 
God is said to have an influence on it. God is said to deliver up Christ. We see the apostolic testimony in, in Acts 2.23, and again in Acts 4.28. This was not barely an act of his prescience, meaning God is aware of it, or knew in advance that these things would happen, but by his counsel. In fact, Peter calls it the determinate counsel of God. The determinate, meaning God planned, purposed, and caused this. And yet, God was not the author of sin. He makes a distinction between those two acts. His determinate counsel and the presence of sin. In God, it was an act of counsel, says Charnock, in the them, meaning those who accomplished the evil deeds, in them it was an act of wickedness by wicked hands. There was God's counsel about it, an actual working out of these things. So we see this, this in the presence of the, the worst of wickedness that men could conceive, the actual murder of the God-man. It was God's determinate counsel, it was God's plan, it was God's providential rule up to every single event that surrounded it. Whether it was the betrayal of Judas, or the, the timidity and the cowardice of Pilate, the pride of Pilate, or the wickedness of, of Caiaphas and the others on the council, whether it was the, the weakness and the betrayal of his disciples, all of those things God had ordained to use and yet God was not the one who provoked um, a, a, a deceitfulness in Judas. That came from Judas. The malice that was in the heart of Caiaphas, the high priest, was not God's authorship. Sin came from the creature. And yet God used that very sin to accomplish his purposes. It wasn't the, the callous disregard for life in the hand of the Roman soldier. God was not the author of that, and yet God used it to cause his own son to be nailed to the cross to accomplish his eternal and divine purposes. Charnock continuing his argument, he says, in, in all God's acts about sin, there is no stain to God's holiness. In second causes one and the same action proceeding from diverse causes in respect of one cause may be sinful in respect of the other righteous so here's, here's some examples god moves everything in his ordinary providence according to their particular natures so sinful men act according to their sinful natures this is what james is, was telling us earlier in the in the passage we considered just as the fish acts according to his nature, and, and he seizes upon something that's glittery and shiny and moving in front of him. He doesn't ever stop to think. The fish never stops to think, I wonder, could this be a trap? I wonder, could this, could this enticement before me not actually produce the pleasure that I think it's going to? It just acts according to his nature. And we, too, as sinful men, as sinful women, act according to our nature. We are enticed, we are drawn, we are lured into 
sin. Secondly, God doth not infuse the lust or excite it, though he doth present the object about which the lust is exercised. Now this one gets hard to think about. It is not God, when James says it, God does not tempt us. Charnock is insightful here by saying God doth not infuse the lust or excite it. So used to use James James's words. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, not by the thing presented, but by his own desires. To the fish, it is not the lure that is his problem. It is his own desire to seize hold of whatever swims in front of him. And so it is with us. It is not the thing itself. And, and we can think of some perhaps specific examples. If we look at, for example, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And, and in that commandment is both affirmatively and negatively God's design for marriage, for human sexuality. It is not with respect to sexual sin, the thing itself that is wicked or evil, is it? God has made all things and said they are all good. The very last testimony that we have about Adam and Eve in their pre-fall state, the very last verse, the very last phrase describing man and woman in their state of innocency is that they were naked and unashamed. And yet when we think about sexual sin, it is exactly as James described it. It, it is... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It is not the sexuality that is evil. God made that, declared it good. It is the enticement towards wickedness. It is the own perverted desires. So God doth not infuse, says Charnock, the lust or excite it, though he doth present the object about which the lust is exercised. And, and God is not char to be charged with wickedness or sin when he does that. I think about, and it's not in my notes, it just comes to mind, uh, David's cry in the Psalms, give me neither poverty nor riches. You remember David's, part of that prayer, what was his rationale for not giving poverty or riches? Matthew. Yes. But whether it's prosperity or poverty, both of those would be from the hand of God. And there is nothing inherently sinful, or righteous for that matter, about being prosperous. But with prosperity, can't we agree there are certain temptations that come? But it wasn't the money, it wasn't the prosperity that was the, the, the temptation itself, or was, was the, the cause of evil. It was our own desires, our own corruption within. On the, on, the, on the other hand, poverty is not sinful. I mean, it can be if it's, you arrive at a state of poverty by, your own, by sloth, by refusal to work. But poverty in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But there are all kinds of temptations that will come. David says, I, I will be tempted to steal, for example, to meet my basic needs. So it is... God doth present the object about which the lust is exercised, 
but he does not infuse the lust. He does not excite that lust. That, that blame lies only at our feet as the creatures. Thirdly, God supports the faculties wherein a man sinneth and supports a man in that act wherein he sinneth, but concurs not to the sinfulness of that act. Now we've got to think through this as well. Charnock says God supports the faculties wherewith a man sinneth. So the example I mentioned last week, for the man who blasphemes God, by what strength does he, get, does he blaspheme God? By the strength that God supplies. By what breath? Through what tongue? By what mouth? By what mind? The very one that God has given, and the, one that very, the very one by which God sustains such a man. And yet, God supporting the faculties by which a man sins does not attribute sin to God, does not make him the author. And, and we could think that out and, and we could multiply examples of that. The man who commits violence, unlawful violence against his brother or sister, the, the strength of fist, the provision of a weapon, the, the, the will to cause harm comes from God. And yet it is the wicked desire, the evil affections within such a man that actually causes the evil. So this idea of, for example, that you know, guns don't cause violence, people do. That's not just a political statement. It's a theological one. The, the inanimate object is neither good nor evil. It depends on what's done with it. What is, what is the heart? It's not even the hand. It's not even the finger that pulls the trigger. It's not even the feet that walks a person into a certain place. It's the wicked intentions, the evil thoughts of that person. And God is not the author of those. Even if it is God who supplies the strength, the ability, the opportunity to provide those things or to, to, to attain those things. Fourthly, again, working through Charnock's train of thought, God's providence is conversant about sin as a punishment, yet in a very righteous manner. God's providence is conversant about sin as a punishment, yet in a very righteous manner. God actually uses sin for the chastisement of his people. And I go back to the example we saw in 1 Samuel 24, where it is God who provokes David through the instrument of Satan to number the people so that God could accomplish the chastisement of his people. And lastly, again, thinking through Charnock's train of thought here, he says, it is, by, it is God by his providence who draws glory to himself and good out of sin. And by this he means God orders the sins of men to the glory of his grace. And when he says orders, he doesn't mean command their sin. What he means is he, he, he structures, he, he organizes in such a way that the sins of men bring glory to his grace. Also that God orders them to bring forth temporal mercies. Again, he orders in the sense of he organizes. He, he, he 
providentially governs so that these bring about temporal mercies. Again, we're back to Joseph, aren't we? As an example. God, God caused the use of all these other things, all the sinful predilections of his brothers, all their pride, their, their own selfishness, their, their jealousy, to accomplish temporal mercies, to, to pro- provide for the physical welfare of God's people. And then also God orders all these things for the glory of his justice upon others. For the glory of his justice. And I quoted this last week, but I think it bears repeating. God therefore in his government doth advance his power in the weakness, his wisdom in the follies, his holiness in the sins, his mercy in the unkindness, and his justice in the unrighteousness of men. Yet, God is not defiled with the impurities of men, but rather draws forth a glory to himself. As a rose doth a greater beauty and sweetness from the strong smell of the garlic set near to it. We can, I think, feel... The, the, the weight of this, the perplexity of it, but at the same time, I, I hope that we can land where the Apostle Paul does and find the comfort in it. If we turn to Romans, one of the most glorious passages in, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> where Paul's working through this very issue and he comes to the conclusion verse 18 i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed for us paul recognizes that this creation this fallen world is fraught with all kinds of difficulties there are all kinds of sufferings all kinds of difficulties here and yet god is faithful to work in those things and through those things so much so that Paul concludes this this train of thought in verse 31 of Romans 8. What shall we say then? Write your back up. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, we have to ask ourselves, how comprehensive is all things? It's all of it, isn't it? I mean... we can press Paul's words to their fullest extent. God uses all things. Yes, even your sorrow, your grief, your suffering. Even your own sin and folly. Even the sin and folly of those near to you that have harmed you. Even in the the most vile ways imaginable, God can and in fact does use even to those things. And, and it, you know, as, as, as Christians, I think we have to be prepared um, humbly, charitably, but also boldly to, to answer this kind of question because some of the most difficult, extreme, vile and wicked deeds may be kind of thrown in our face. What about this? 
how can a good God allow X or Y or Z? And we have to be able to respond from the Scriptures that there is no greater evil ever done at any point in human history than the murder of God's own son. There is no wickedness that compares. There there are deeds that may shock our sensibilities in ways that um, the the natural man may find more offensive. The the, the harm of a child in, in, in a horrendous way, for example. And yet we have to recognize that no evil, no evil deed ever done has surpassed the the wholesale wickedness of the murder of God's own son. The conspiracy, the lies, the manipulation, the injustice, all of those things leading up to his actual crucifixion. And so when Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, he means all of it for those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Paul's answer, who can be against us? He he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you you kind of see and feel what's underneath that statement? If God allowed, maybe at at great risk here, will you allow me to, to... to paraphrase or or rephrase this? He who allowed the greatest of all wickedness to come to his own son, who allowed the ultimate in human sinfulness to be displayed in the betrayal and murder of his own son, and yet worked good, an ultimate and final and eternal good, how much, or how will he not also with him whom he has raised from the dead graciously give us all things? He goes on, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famineness, or famine, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Now as we looked last time, thinking about our definition of evil, evil is the absence of good where good ought to be. So as, as Paul runs through this list, tribulation. Well, that's, that's the absence of some good where good ought to be. Shall distress, 
What causes distress to you? It, it's, it's the real or perceived lack of some good where good ought to be. If, if, you are in, if your finances are causing distress, it is because you perceive that you, or are you actually, it is actually the case that you do not have the funds to meet your current needs, and that causes a distress. It's a lack of something where something ought to be. Persecution is, is simply a lack of worship, where, where worship ought to be, isn't it? It's a lack of devotion to God and to His people. It's a lack of good towards God and His people, where it ought to be. Famine, an easy one. It's the lack of material resources, where those resources ought to be. Nakedness is a lack of, of covering, a lack of clothing, where those things ought to be. It's a lack of shelter, where we ought to have shelter. Danger, a sword, and it goes on. God, and yet God is not the author of sin, but God faithfully, diligently, perfectly, benevolently accomplishes good, eternal, final, ultimate good, by the use of those very things. I'll close with this. Chad Van Dixhorn, in his, his commentary on the Westminster Confession, which, whose language is, is almost identical, he says this, God permits sin but it is the sort of permission that is joined with a most wise and powerfully bounding or limiting. God rules over sin and sinners. God decides the extent to which sin will reign and the extent to which it will be restrained in his world and in the life of every man, woman, and child. Certainly, this is a great mystery to us as it surely was to the psalmist when he calls attention to the fact that even the wrath of man can praise God, and the remainder of that wrath God can restrain. That's in Psalm 76. So God governs all things, even sin. He does so for his most holy ends. And thanks be to him, one of his purposes is to save us when we sin or suffer, and another is to chastise us when we stray. But however we understand divine providence over sin, we must realize that the actual sinfulness of people and of situations proceeds only from the creature, never from the Creator. God is most holy, God is most righteous. He is not, He was not, is not, and will not be the author of sin. And He did not, does not, and will never approve of sin. This is a fact which Scripture does not explain but which it does state with unqualified precision and clarity. I think that last statement may be the most important of all. This is all a fact, which Scripture does not explain, but which it does state with unqualified precision and clarity. We've seen this now with James and John both testify to this reality. We've seen throughout the Scriptures this is true. God is not the author of sin. Um, and, and if your expectation is to be able to wrap your mind around that fully, I, I hate to disappoint you. But at the same time, I, I hope that it's an encouragement to us uh, to rest in, in the Lord Himself rather than resting in our own ability 
to sort it all out. Not resting in our own ability to make sense of it all, but simply to accept with a humility and, and, and eyes of faith what God says is true. He is not the author of sin, wickedness, evil of any kind. And yet, according to his wisdom, power, and goodness, he actually uses those things. So they don't go to waste. So when we are confronted with, with sin within us, God's not, God will make good use of it. That doesn't mean, as Paul said, well, okay, then I'll just sin more, that grace would abound. No, 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 no. That's not the proper response, is it? But it is to look with eyes of faith that God will redeem even this. God will use even my own sin and folly to accomplish his purposes. Perhaps in my chastisement, in my refinement, in, in, in causing me to grow and be more like my Savior. Perhaps he will use my own sin and folly ultimately to encourage and exhort and build up and strengthen someone else. As we turn the corner, we'll look next time at, uh, we, we've, been, we've been laboring to lay down this doctrine in paragraph 4. Paragraph 5 begins to apply this in very personal ways. Because the question then is, okay, evil in general, sin in general out in the world, that's one thing, to recognize that God uses that for good. But what about when you find evil in your own heart? heart. Is there an utter despair? Is there a faithlessness? And paragraph 5 will help us to think through even that issue. How do we look, how do we, when we observe sin and wickedness in a brother or sister, in the, within the, the, the membership of a church, within a family, how do we think about these things? Are we, are we willing to see, not in just a theoretical sense, but in a true and actual sense, that God is in fact working good even in those circumstances? So you may want to read ahead, you know, meditate on paragraph 5 as we prepare to, to look at that one next, next time. Any closing questions? Matthew? Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it, it, certainly there's, there's a truth in that statement. And, and part of this is recognizing that God has not given us an, has not thoroughly explained this matter in the scriptures. He stated it as true. And there are a number of things that we will uncover in the scriptures as, as we. As we come near to God, as we study his word, there will be things where, as Job did, we have to put our hand over our mouth and say, this is not for us to know. God has not given this to us to know. And those of you who, particularly with younger children, you, you, as, as parents, this, this is the reality sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes your kids have a lot of questions. And sometimes the appropriate answer is, as a parent is, this is not for you to know. 
or maybe not for you to know right now. You're going to have to trust daddy. You're going to have to trust mommy on this. Um, this is not for you to know. This is either this is information that you are not mature enough yet to handle, or this is a private matter that's just not your business. And, and there's sometimes as parents, we shouldn't be bashful about saying that to our kids. Because that's the way the world is, isn't it? As we're training them, training them to, to, to operate in the world that God has actually made, not the one they wish they lived in. And so sometimes these things are not, not for us to know. Some of these things will be revealed to us in the glories of heaven. We see now through a glass dimly, one day face to face. But there are still secret things that belong to the Lord our God alone that we may or may not ever know, even in eternity. But that's really the essence of faith, isn't it? It's the substance of things not seen. It's trusting even when answers are not answered, or questions are not answered to our satisfaction. Let me pray for us, and we'll take a uh, short recess, and we'll gather again to worship. Our God and our Father, we, we thank you for your, your holiness, your steadfastness. For your, your, your goodness is beyond our comprehension. Lord, will you help us to, to guard our, our minds, our lips, from the temptation to image you after ourselves? To think because we cannot comprehend the use of sin and evil to accomplish good, help us not to think that you are like us in that. Help us to recognize that you are in no way like us. Help us to declare with the psalmist that you're your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Help us simply to trust you, to believe you, and to rest on what you have given to us uh, to know. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.